This is the Be God's Light podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. Back in 2022, we spent an entire year looking at the life of Jesus from the four Gospels. And then last year, 2023, we explored the rest of the New Testament. So here in 2024, we're looking at the Old Testament and how God has been at work from the very, very beginning. Last week, we talked about Noah and building of the ark, and it was because evil was everywhere in the world. That was Genesis chapter 6. But by Genesis chapter 13, it's not exactly like it's better. The, the world gets repopulated, and there's, there are more people, but there are also problems. And I, and I go to Genesis 13, Ben, to set this story up because the story of Sodom is really told later, and we're going to get to Genesis 18 and 19. But in chapter 13, we have the beginnings of it. We see it take place. Now, Abraham came along after Noah, like everybody else did. And Abraham was uh, a man who traveled into the land of Canaan, which we now call Israel, and he settled there. But he, he brought with him his nephew, Lot, that name Lot, L-O-T, it's an interesting name. And he brought him along, and so Abraham's family and Lot's family become significant families that live in the area. Genesis 13 says that Abram, which was what he was known at the time, Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Verse 5 of Genesis 13, now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So both these families, the, the uncle and the nephew, are wealthy. But the land could not support them because they had so much possession and livestock. The land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at the time. So there's a there's a lot of it, Israel's an interesting place. I mean, it's not Israel is not Indiana. Let me just say that. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, you are uh, you are a well studied uh, man of geography. I, I am well studied, and also I've been a Hoosier all my life. And I'm telling you, if we have anything, it's farmland. <laughs> that's that's what that's what we have. Uh, there are there are fields and pastures and all kinds of stuff. That is not the story in Israel. They're like you travel around, like where do the animals eat? <laughs> I mean, look, while I was driving through, I wasn't driving. When I was riding on a bus through Israel. It was like there. It's not like these vast pastures that are there of massive fields and places. They're like tufts of grass and things that stick up and whatever, and they've got to take their. Their herds to those to, to feed them. Uh, and I would imagine that it was the same way back then as well. So it wasn't like there's plenty of land, plenty of pasture land. Everybody just have at it. They probably had to vie for it. So they, um, they started fighting. They, they, started, they started going at it. And, and in order to, for there not to be a problem, and this is again in Genesis 13, Abram said to his nephew, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. 
if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, this is pretty noble of him because he's the patriarch. He's, he's the uncle. He's the guy in charge. But he tells his nephew, you choose what I, you want, and I'll take the leftover. Verse 10, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord. So down near the Jordan River, it's, there's better land. It's like the land of Egypt, it says. This was before, parenthetically, the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plains and pitched his tents near Sodom. And verse 13, now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So I, I, I just throw that in there as a context to set it up that, first of all, after Noah and the flood and the rainbow and the promise, by chapter 13, people were already wicked and sinning greatly. And, and the other thing is that what Lot thought he was getting was the better end of the deal. Let me go live where near the banks of the river, the, there's more pasture for my flocks and herds and all those things. But what he really was getting was living in proximity to a city which was known for wickedness. What can we learn from this, just this small decision, this vast decision really, of how you discern what you're going to do, where, like where you're going to live, how you're going to raise your family, what community you're going to be in, what job you're going to be in, what church you're going to go to. We make decisions all the time in life, but they can have implications down the road. Could could Lot have known? I mean, the Bible's already saying the people were wicked, so maybe they already had a reputation, but he thought, eh, it won't affect me. I can just go enjoy the, the better pasture land, grazing land. That's what's going to affect me, and it won't have an impact on my life. I, we don't know what he was fully aware of or not aware of it. You got anything that you think through this? Yeah, I mean, I think that, to your point, he sees the pasture, the pasture land that's available, which is pleasing to the eye, which seems good for uh, his animals, which will be suitable for his his herdsmen to to find pasture for uh, his animals, and that's all he sees. And so, his what in his own mind, what he's tasked with is, you know, I'm a herdsman. Basically, I'm a shepherd. I need to find good grass for my animals. That's all he sees. And I think we, we run into the same problem because we are oftentimes conditioned by whether it's, it's culture or immediate needs to such a degree that we don't process through the decisions we make. And so, you, you know, even within our our own cultural context. Uh, one of the things that, that, that I sometimes think about, I, I just came back or a couple of weeks ago, came back from Florida and, uh, you know, spent some time, um, in, in the villages, which is like the preeminent retirement community in, in the U S and we have some dear family friends that, that live there. Let me did prep- you buy a place for the future. I did not. <laughs> I don't have that money. I don't have that kind of money. Uh, but 
But what I would say, and again, let me preface this with saying there's nothing wrong with retiring to Florida, okay? So do not misunderstand what I'm about to say. But what I would say is that for many, when we look, retirement has become almost this, well, this is what you do when you hit 55, you start thinking about it. And somewhere between 55 and 70, people tend to retire and then immediately live into the retirement ethos that comes with our Western ideals, which for many is I'm going to, you know, move to, you know, I'm going to move South, don't have to deal with winter, or I'm going to winter in the South and I'm going to live as I so choose. Like I have put my labor in and now it's time to travel, to golf, to fish, to engage in what other, whatever uh, other leisure activity exists. I know that's not true for, for many, but it is interesting to me how so many people just are almost conditioned to think this is what I do. And so, I mean, I, I have people in my own age bracket who they, are, they have been conditioned and they have planned, financially planned, to retire when they are 55 and immediately they will move to a retirement community in the South somewhere, not even thinking or processing through, I believe, not processing through what does that actually mean for me in my relationship with the Lord? And so I think there's a lack of discernment a lot of times, whether it's with that, that kind of life decision or other life decisions that we're almost blind to because, well, this is just what we do as a people. And so for a herdsman, what does he need? He needs land. He needs pasture. I need to find pasture for my sheep and doesn't think more broadly about the ultimate impact of living in that mm. particular region. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for them, it was green grass and for us, it might be sandy beaches or warm weather or uh, a life of leisure and, and luxury in, in those phases of life. My dad lived to be 95. I think he stopped working at age 90 or 91. He wasn't working full time by that point, but he was still working for a car dealership and he was uh, doing, doing work for them, fi filing documents and sometimes uh, driving cars to where they, they needed to be go for, for be, uh, even to other cities. He'd drive to Detroit from, from Muncie, Indiana and go to a dealer trade, he was still working. And in fact, in, in his late 80s, I got him a job because he was bored. And I knew a guy that had a company and they needed, they needed to hire somebody to, do, to mow their three or five acre lots they had at their two businesses. And I said, you know, my dad would probably love to do that. And so my dad got a job in his late 80s mowing these huge lots and taking his chainsaw and trimming down the trees that were on the place and all this kind of a deal. I'm not saying that we should all work until we're 90. That's, that's not necessarily the point, but there is a tendency to chase something shiny or leisurely yeah. or that and not think of the implications of what it's going to do to me, my, my spiritual life, my family. Yeah, all that. Cause the, the question that lot really should have been confronting himself with, which is the question that we should confront ourselves with is this God's will? Is this God's desire for me? Is this the land that God wants me to go to? Um, and so for, for us, you, you know, no matter if we're 
you know, in our teens or our twenties or our forties or, you know, we're 80. Really old, like sixties. Yeah. Sorry, sir. Um, (laughs) but, but be processing life through the lens of, is this where God is leading me? Could, could God be leading you to, to, you know, to retirement in Florida? Absolutely. Not, not disputing that possibility, but again, constantly asking that question rather than living on what I would call like assumption. And I think a lot of times we live on culturally conditioned assumptions, assuming, well, this is where my life must go. And so there's kind of an ethos, you know, within, uh, you know, middle upper class, uh, um, Americans, you know, middle to upper class Americans, this kind of sense of, you know, I've, I've put my time in at work. I've put my time in raising my family and then upon retirement, now it's my time. Mm -hmm. And I think the the big thing for us is to recognize just as a lot should have that my life, my time are not my own. God has given them to me for the sake of his glory. And so how am I processing my life? How am I discerning next steps based upon that reality? Yeah, because Lot had family. He, he had, we, we know that from later in the story and he took them to a place which was known for wickedness. Right. And we fast forward to chapter 18. So a few chapters later in Genesis 18, the story is, is picked up and God is speaking to Abraham in chapter 18 and verse 20, it says the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and the neighboring town, Gomorrah, the outcry is so great and their sin so grievous. We just we looked at a, that in the story of Noah, how the sin and wickedness of the people grieved the heart of God, and we see it here again, that, that sin grieves God's heart. We should not forget that. We, we often think that, that God is trying to prevent us from, from doing things, but to really understand that he's created us in his image and that when we do whatever we want to do and it's outside of his good and perfect will, it grieves him. It, and it's the, the sin grieves him, obviously the action that is a rebellious action against him. What we need to understand also in that context is what also grieves God is the damage that the sin does to those created in his image. And so, you know, God is grieved by our sin because we are not fully living into his joy. And what he wants for us is to know the fullness of his joy, you know, to know the wholeness that exists in, um, in his truth, in his love. And when we're not living uh, into that, God is grieved by that. And so it's not just simply God sees the act and is grieved by the act itself. He grieves for us, having been ones who are living in rebellion to him and not knowing the fullness of his joy and love. That's exactly right. So he's grieved because in those same ways you're talking about. And he's a bit, again, in verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down to and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I'll know. And then the, it says in verse 22, the men turned away. These, these are like these, these two men that came along with the Lord, these angelic beings, and the men turned away and went towards Sodom. 
but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached God and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? There's got to be some good people there. It's a similar story with the flood, that people were swept away in the flood. Now they're, they're going to be swept away in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then there's this bartering that takes place between Abraham and God. And it's a classic story of God listening to Abraham as Abraham is interceding, pleading for the people. And it's in verse 24, or in Genesis 18, what if there are 50 people, 50 righteous people in the city? God, will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? This feels like just a bold thing to say to God. Like, let me remind you, God, who you are and your righteousness. Let me remind the world of who you are and how you, you work. Won't you do right? It's an interesting phrase there, and I, I don't know what the Hebrew exactly says in the NIV, which I'm reading from. It says, won't the judge of the earth do right? The opposite of that would be to do wrong, which God doesn't do. But it's a, it's a bold way to come before him, to come before God and speak to him. I, I, I sometimes think our prayers to God are maybe too timid. We, we ask God to to intervene and do miraculous things, especially when it's a friend or loved one we know that is going through a, a time. But I wonder if we come before God, when we, we look at the, the challenges of the world, the, the problems that are going on with, with poverty and, and starvation and, and war and genocide and, and even the problems in our, our own communities and our, our culture, our school systems, our cities, and if we're intervening with that kind of passion before God and really taking things to him and saying, won't you, won't you do this? I don't know if you have a response to no, what, I, I'm, what I mean, I'm getting I, at here. Yeah, I think we like can take a note from Abraham's boldness and, and feel that, that freedom in our relationship with God through Christ to, to come before him, to share with him the expression of our heart. And uh, one of the, the thing that I love in the passage, though, is I see Abraham's boldness, but I love God's nurturing of him. Because God, Abraham is, in essence, young in his faith here. So God does not respond to Abraham like he responds to Job. Mm. Job, who was one who was mature in his faith, at the end of Job, God says, you know, who are you, O man? God doesn't, go to, doesn't respond to Abraham and say, who are you, O oh man, to ask me of this question, basically to, to question my goodness here. Instead, what God does is God reveals himself more fully to Abraham through Abraham's bold outpouring to God, where God reveals uh, who he is as a just judge, and he also reveals to Abraham the fullness of his mercy. You know, because by the end of it, as they go through the the numbers, um, you know, he says, uh, um, 
let's see here. We can pick it up in, in verse 32, maybe. I don't know. He says, then he said, you know, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just one more. What if only 10 can be found there? And, and God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. <laughs> and so what God could have done immediately, Abraham could have just started the question. And God said, should have, could have said, you know, who are you, oh man? I know what I'm doing. Just silence and just, you know, uh, thrown down uh, fire upon Sodom. But that's not what God does here. And so we see the, the fatherly character of God in nurturing the heart of Abraham in this as well. And I don't want that to be lost in the midst of this narrative. Absolutely right. That, that God's compassion is there. So there were the three of them, the Lord and two angels were, and the two angels left. And in chapter 19, we see these two, two angelic beings. Chapter 19, verse one, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, I don't know if he knew if Lot knew they were angels or not, because they, they were described as men in chapter 19 and chapter 18. But here in chapter 19, when he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. Come to my place. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the, in the square. We'll just sleep outside. We'll, we'll just stay out here in the public square. Verse three, but Lot insisted so strongly that they did, did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, quicker, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out. To us so that we can have sex with them. Maybe, I mean, I, I wonder, maybe Lot knew where he was. I mean, he knew the city now. And that's why he said, you can't sleep out in the public square. You, you got to come to my house. You got to come in here for some protection because I've made my, my choice. I now live here. I know the community. You got to get inside. Verse six, Lot went outside uh, to meet them, these guys, and shut the door behind him and said, you know, no, don't do it. It's, it's, this is a weird part of the story to me. No friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. You can do what you like with them. That is weird to me. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I have to say it. Uh, don't do anything these men. They've come under my protect under the roof, protection of my roof. Don't you think his daughters were under the protection of his roof? I mean, yeah. there's a lot going on here about the wickedness of this city and the community and yeah. what was allowed. Yeah, and, and also remembering, you know, when we read throughout the scripture, we have to also look yeah, cult, at statements that are context. being made. Cultural context, yep. sure. And there's aspects, obviously, of hospitality that's rooted um, in, in ancient culture that is different from what we understand. The other piece of this, though, is that Lot... It's not as if God was ordaining Lot's, uh, Lot's offer of his, his daughters to these men. And so it, we have to remember when we're reading scripture, is this prescriptive or is this descriptive? Is this God ordained or is this just what is happening 
in the middle of this historical narrative. There are also some, which I need to read more up on, but there are also some that look at Lot's words here and they way, the way that they actually translate Lot's words based upon their, he, their understanding of the Hebrew is that Lot is basically saying, I would sooner give up my daughters than allow these men, um, than, than give these men up to you. And so it's not that Lot was offering his daughters, but making the statement that, again, I would sooner give them up than give these men to you. Yeah, it's, it's still weird. Absolutely. <laughs> Even with that. Absolutely. Because, no, I don't see this as God wanting this at all. But it's, it's, that, I but mean, it, he, he'd been in that culture now, like yes. this custom, like, I got to give these guys something. Yes. And that's just a mess. It is. It is. And again, Remembering, because again, when we read these Old Testament passages and we see people who we perceive as being on the side of God, sometimes there's this sense that God is ordaining their behavior, um, and this is not like one of those God-ordained moments. And so this is a descriptive of what's happening rather than prescriptive. God is not compelling Lot to give up Lot's daughters. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I, I'm with you. Yeah. It seems weird, but you know, the story goes on. Well, we won't pick up all of it, but... Uh, the angels blinded those guys, <laughs> and so they went. They found their way home, uh, and they were left alone. And then they told Lot, "Tomorrow morning, this place is getting destroyed. Yes, it's, Get it's getting it's getting wiped off the map." And so, down in verse fifteen, chapter nineteen, verse fifteen, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, "Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here." or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. And they, they leave and fire and brimstone come down and wipe out the city and Lot's wife turns around and turns into a bottle of Morton salt. And it's kind of weird, you know, it's, I mean, there's some, some, some stuff there. This but, podcast is brought to you by Morton's. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, you know, again, it's like, there's some lessons to be learned from this from the story of Sodom and, and one of them, like, like, don't, don't be wicked, but don't, don't surround yourself with wickedness and don't, don't think that, Oh, I can just, I can do this fine. I can hang around these people or be in this, this friendship group or participate in this activity. And it won't affect me because that's just not the way life is. It, it rubs off. The stink rubs off. And we need to be judicious about where we put our loyalties, put our time, put our trust, put down our roots, and, and make our life to live. I don't think that every problem or disaster in the world is the hand of God. Some people tend to look at every flood and earthquake and hurricane and, and whatever as God bringing punishment on a community or city. And I, I don't see it like that. Uh, on the other hand, I would say that you know God hates wickedness, and we need to, in our own lives, pay attention to where we stake out our property, so to speak, our our time, our our social media presence, whatever it is, and what are we throwing ourselves into, because it will affect us. Final yeah. thoughts. Yeah, and and with that, we need to be persistently. We we need to be careful from the standpoint that there are things that sometimes we can even throw ourselves into 
that we have somehow or another self-justified or redeemed in our own mind as being potentially aligned with God that are not. Mm-hmm. And that's where we need the, the guidance of God's own self-revelation, the, the guidance of his, his love as we live out our, our lives, because the thing that we, we long for, or we, we need to long for again, is, is we are redundant on this, is how is this overall contributing both to my formation uh, more fully into the likeness of Jesus Christ, and how is this contributing overall to the mission that God has given me to bear witness to Jesus Christ? Because in order to bear witness to Jesus Christ, we are going to engage, rightfully engage, um, into the lives of those who do not know Absolutely. Uh, Christ. And, and with that, um, that, that's, the, that's the nature of, of our life. But what we want to do is we want to engage that culture. We want to engage those who don't know Jesus with that convictional kindness that reflects Jesus Christ to where, again, our, our lives, our hearts are being conditioned by Christ and not by, uh, by, by those around us, uh, for lack of a better, yeah, for lack of a better thought. Well, those are good words. And next week, we're going to take a look at another tense story between people in a relationship. In this case, they were brothers. We'll take a look at sibling rivalry on a huge scale in the story of Jacob and his brother Esau. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, you can go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, and click on the Be God's Light link. This will take you to more elements in this year-long study of the Old Testament. We have things there like a daily scripture reading with devotions and poem, and you can get a link to our weekly sermons on some of these topics that fill in the gaps between what we're saying and other episodes of this podcast. And if you want to stay up to date with the Be God's Light podcast, we encourage you to Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk to you next time.